Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 4, Turnabout is Fair Play, where we will be looking at Chapter 6 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of subtle manipulation. All right, so I have heard one bit of feedback from someone saying that they like the shortened version of the explanation of the podcast, so I will endeavor to read it really, 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 really fast. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Wise Man's Fear, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then we will share a recommended thing of the week. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. I hope that that was fast enough. <laughs> Before we begin, let's get our usual disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Secondly, our discussions naturally assume familiarity with the text, and so naturally there's going to be some spoilers ahead. And finally, word to our community, be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds we love exploring. With that out of the way, let's move into our 45-second recap. It's your turn. You got 45 seconds to recap our chapter, and if you can't do it, there's going to be raspberries. Your threats don't scare me. It was one chapter. You know, that kind of hubris got me last time, so... Not my problem. I'm just warning you. It may be harder than you think. Might be. I'll go ahead and get the timer ready. In three, two, one, go. Quoth goes on stage at the Aeolian and plays a joke on his lute at the audience's expense. He's given up hope of gaining a patron thanks to Ambrose, so he hopes instead to impress his friends and fellow musicians. It somewhat pays off, keeping him and his buddies well in their cups all evening, with some to spare. By the end of the night, he is pleasantly drunk and climbs into his bed, feeling at home for the first time since losing his family. 23.55 seconds. Told you one chapter, I'm good. I did not engineer the last time I had to do this, and this time I had to do this as being one chapter. It just fit to my advantage. This time. This time. Eh. All right. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into chapter six. Title for this one is Love. And you can kind of see why. It's a pretty warm chapter, all told. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of different types of love in this. It's not just one. It's not just romantic love. And in fact, that romantic love is very fleeting within this. Yeah, the first thing we get is Quoth waxing rhapsodic about his lute. His music represents a core part of who he is. I think it's the thing he likes best about himself. You and I don't place a whole lot of value on things, necessarily. I mean, I've moved across the Pacific Northwest before with only a carload of things. And those were things that I needed, like plates and blankets and clothes, almost all of which have been replaced since then. You know, it was 12 plus years ago. They're all just things. Our house is now full of things, but there aren't a whole lot of treasures, not a whole lot of items that we value above their use. But I'd say that right now we are in the room full of 
things that we would prefer to save or keep above most everything else in the house. And that's our musical instruments. His lute is something that he loves, even as he acknowledges that it's flawed. Its neck is a little bent. It's got dings and scratches here and there. Its finish isn't perfect, but it's the tool through which he channels his music, which is this core part of himself. And he's able to love the lute, warts and all, not because it's perfect, but because it has character. He even has a really good quote on this. So yes, it had flaws, but what does that matter when it comes to matters of the heart? We love what we love, and reason does not enter into it. In many ways, unwise love is the truest love. Anyone can love a thing because. That's as easy as putting a penny in your pocket. But to love something despite, to know the flaws and to love them too, that is rare and pure and perfect. Now, I have heard this quote being attributed to how Quoth feels about Denna, and in that case, it feels ooky because it says thing. But this isn't about Denna but it can also be attributed to how he feels about Denna. I think it's analogous. And I think there's something true about that. When you love someone, you don't ask them to be perfect. You don't ask them to have all of the rough edges sanded off. You don't ask them to have everything fixed. You understand that this is them and you love them as they are, where they are on their journey understanding that nobody's finished, nobody's perfect, nobody is without baggage, you know, and being able to accept that, I think that there's definitely something true about this. There's something, I think, pure about it, and I think that Quoth and Patrick Rothfuss are getting at something deep. One of those things about feeling love for the imperfect Quoth doesn't allow people to see his imperfections. He doesn't give anyone a chance to love him despite. He wants everyone to love him because. Yet, he loves his lute despite. He loves Denna after a fashion despite. He loves Ari. He loves his friends Willem, Sim, Fella, Davy. I think that there's love for all of them a camaraderie, a feeling of love for the people that you are friends with, that deep connection that you either crave or you have, is its own type of love. And love does not have to denote romantic feelings. Because what do you have when romance fades? What do you have when you have aromantic people who still feel love? They just don't have that romantic attraction. You know, I love our cats. I do not feel a romantic attraction to our cats. Well, and our cats are a perfect example of this loving despite, not because. I mean, if we demanded our cats to be perfect, Leela would not be covered in snot and shoving her snotty face in our face, and they would not be family. They are adorable, and we absolutely love them, even as they can be disruptive and trying at times. I mean, Sokka is a 20-pound goofball, and we have to have a barrier around our oven so that he won't knock things onto them, off of them, walk all over it, light himself on fire. But he is obsessed with the counter right next to it. 
And he knows, because he's a smart cat, that if he bothers that area, I will get up. That's probably why he does it. Yes, <laughs> which is frustrating. But if we didn't love him despite that, we wouldn't have him in our house. And I think there's also something about this when it comes to friendship. If you're only friends with perfect people, you're not going to have friends. Everybody's a little broken. Everybody's trying to make their way through life and trying to figure things out. And nobody's a finished product. I mean, I'm friends with people that I disagree with on certain things. I don't find some of their behavior to be perfect. But it's perfect for who they are. It fits them. And... I don't have to love them despite their behavior. I just accept their behavior and move on. Right. And that's just it. It's understanding that everyone's growing. We're all works in progress. One thing I think Quoth could learn a little bit here is to have some of that same grace for himself. Because I think that he doesn't think that anyone can love him despite his flaws. Though we have some criticism here for our Quoth, it's of the gentle variety. Speaking of his flaws... One of his massive, massive flaws is the, if you haven't experienced this, you couldn't possibly understand what I am going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I am a superior being who knows all of this stuff. We get it, Quoth. We get it. Condescension's never a good look, which is basically his entire little joke here on the audience. True. Let's get into it. So he starts off, I think, still a little smarting from his encounter with Denna's paramour. I think that that might have encouraged this behavior. So he starts with playing a folk tune called Bellwether, but he does it in this way that looks really effortful and full of flourishes, designed to call attention to how effortful it all is. He's sweating. He's tripping on himself he doesn't seem to be able to catch up to the melody and I mean I've played like that before with things that I'm very unfamiliar with but he makes it look like the most difficult thing to make his fingers get out and not only that though he, he makes it look like this required effort to accomplish skillfully he pulled it off and at the end the audience is left half confused and half amused. Well, and the confusion is because there's half the audience that is in on the joke that recognizes that he's essentially playing a little prank. And then there's the other half of the audience that is like, oh, that's amazing. And they're the ones who are... Being manipulated. Yeah. To bring it back to our lens of the episode. Of course, this is only half the joke. Because he goes on to play a complicated score by one of the world's most famous bards from history. One that is playing to his very hipsterish, cheeky, impish self. Yeah, this is a piece called Tintata Tornin. Try saying that five times fast. Which... No, thank you. And the name really kind of says it all. It even has that feel of just ridiculous complexity for complexity's sake. I like to think of it as how to jam as many notes down a fretboard as possible. <laughs> and he plays it as if this is just something he's noodling with. <laughs> One thing that he mentions is that he was so wrapped up in his own deception, his own manipulation of the audience, that he felt a yawn coming on and he just went with it. I think this is maybe 
one of the first times we see Quoth under a glamour almost, like the way that he is when he's Coat, where he's so deep in the deception that he becomes the deception. Of course, here it's where the musicians who caught the setup are really now laughing at the punchline. And they recognize that he's playing a gag on the audience because he's making the simple look complex and the complex look painfully simple. There's a little bit of condescension in all of this. There's that superiority that he so often displays. And again, with what did he call the guy that is with Denna right now? Oh, Lord Brickjaw. I do think that there's a little bit of that petty power move of, oh, you play an instrument. That's adorable. I do it better. Yeah, it's clearly meant to one-up this guy. And while I understand it, the fact is he's playing for a full audience. And when you're making your audience into a joke, it can be kind of off-putting. Yeah, well, he already feels like it doesn't matter. He's throwing away the entirety of everything for the sake of a joke, but also because he feels like the everything is a lost cause anyway. So why not amuse people that he likes and not try to impress people that he doesn't? Which he's already displayed that as his preferred behavior back when he was learning from his mother on how to display proper etiquette for lords and ladies. The kicker is that it's not just noble folk that are caught up in his disdain. They aren't the only people that come to the Aeolian. His table full of friends are also not in on the joke. And there are plenty of other common folk around that are essentially being made into the butt of a joke. And there is a little bit of, he's got his own classism built into it. He's tarring the common folk in the audience with the same brush that he's using to go after the nobility. And I don't know that he realizes this. I don't know that that's a fair thing to do. Though it does really get the ultimate dad joke when Stanchion <laughs> comes to give a gentle chiding to Kvothe about this. Because Sim says, well, technically, he didn't just play the joke on the audience. He played the joke on the loot. Exactly. <laughs> I love Sim. Ah, oh, and poor bless his heart, Sim realizes that everyone has pretty much just groaned at him. And he's like, but, but funny. Well, and there is also a little bit of wisdom here when we understand that there are those who get the joke and those who have to have the joke explained to them. And if you have to explain a joke, it's not funny. But it's also telling that both views the people who get the joke as his people. He's othering everyone else. Yep. And I don't know that this was meant to make Kvothe look good. Now, I, I think this is not necessarily the most flattering portrait of Kvothe. And I think Coat, the storyteller in this case, is aware of this. I definitely think that Pat is aware of this. We'll also see that Quoth will be paying the price for his arrogance here, in short order. In the meanwhile, we also get a charming interaction as Marie gets acquainted with the group. I thought it was really kind of fun how Manette really gets to take center stage here and charms her off her feet. <laughs> to a point, I think that she's skeptical. I think that she's like, okay, okay. 
Let's see how this plays out. But I think she can hold her own, and I don't think that Manette is predatory. No. The thing to note about Manette is that where everyone else is super intimidated by her, to the point of putting her up on this pedestal, even though she is tall enough that she doesn't need a pedestal to be seen above everyone else, <laughs> he is able to strike up a conversation with her because he sees her as a person first. And he respects her and her time, recognizing that she doesn't owe him anything, and that he also has something to contribute in a conversation with her. It's that confidence without arrogance, I think, that makes this all work. He's confident enough to know that this is a smart person and they are valuable for who they are. I am also a smart person. And hey, maybe we could have a good conversation together. And if she's not interested, it's no big deal. It's no loss. And if she is, cool. And somehow this is just so impressive to Sim and Will. So I think that Pat does a good job of illustrating that while they seem worldwide to Kvothe, there is value in looking up to people who have more experience, i.e. Manette. And not everyone that you feel is an expert knows everything and has nothing to learn. But I think that all of these conversations have their own little bit of manipulation built in. Yeah, Manette is gambling on his confidence. He knows that there is a chance he will lose. He knows that she always has the option to say no. So he doesn't overplay his hand. He looks at all of this as like playing cards. He's regarded as one of the more astute corners players because he knows when a gamble is worth it and when it's not. Except <laughs> in the actual play that he and Kvoth engage in with Sim and Will, there's a bunch of bad hands and then Kvoth just misplays. And even the best card player sometimes doesn't win in a game of chance. It is as the song says, you got to know when to hold them, when to fold them, when to walk away and when to run. <laughs> but I can understand why he was upset with Kvoth, you know. Boastful, prideful, quoth, screws up. And Manette's like, I thought you were supposed to be good at this. Right. This is also where we get a little bit of explanation for Will and Sim, and I think a refresher for the audience about quoth's manipulation of the people who want to buy him a drink. You know, it feels better to buy someone a drink than it does to give them money. Even though... It would be better for Kvothe if they just gave him the money. He wouldn't have to split the pot three ways. Or as Manette points out, should be two ways. You're getting screwed, kid. Manette, as always, recognizes manipulation pretty astutely. He has a lot more knowledge and wisdom than I think Kvothe or his buddies ever give him credit for. And it makes me wonder why he bothers hanging out with the younglings. I think part of it is he enjoys being able to impart his wisdom. And in many ways, he's a teacher, even as his rank is technically below Kvothe's. He is someone who is eternally curious. He is someone who recognizes that his title isn't what represents his knowledge or his expertise. And he knows that 
he doesn't need to show off. In his own way, Manette is a master manipulator. He has been manipulating the school into letting him just ride along at the lower level with the lower tuition for God's only know how long. <laughs> he is someone who recognizes systems and knows how to make them work to his advantage. One of the things that we learn about Manette in this chapter is that he is clearly a systems level thinker. Also, his pride doesn't get in the way. In fact, he's willing to let other people's pride work to his advantage. True. Other people would let their pride stop them from doing things that would be seen as a risk. He recognizes that he can afford to lose. He knows that losing is always a possibility, and he puts himself into positions where the victory would be worth the possibility of loss. He also doesn't let his own pride make him blindly risk anything. It's the difference between confidence and arrogance. We'll get into that later. So then we wrap up with Quoth dropping the rest of them back at Muse while he wanders the streets of the university a little bit. And this is the safest place he's ever really lived for any extended period of time. I wouldn't say the safest that he's ever lived. He was safe within his troop. He was safe because of his family. I think that emotionally speaking, this is the safest place he has been since losing his family, yes. So what I'm specifically getting at is single place as opposed to the group that he's been with. And we get that when he actually gets back to Anchors and it's this small, modest room and it feels like home. And it's the first place that's felt like home. Prior, when he'd been living with his troop, like you say, yes, he was completely safe, both physically and emotionally, but it was who he was with as opposed to the physical location. This is the first physical location that I think he's felt that home feeling at. I agree, especially when you look at what his last five years have been. And there's something about, again, that whole loving in spite of, not because of, his room at Anchors, like his loot, is modest. It is flawed. You know, it's not perfect. It's tiny. It's a storeroom. It's a glorified attic. Anchor legit actually says, I kind of feel guilty because it's been a storeroom. I didn't rent it back out because who in their right mind would live here? <laughs> Once Quoth comes back from his adventures over the next, what, thousand pages? It's not much, but it's home. And he has a certain affection for Anchor as well. I think that the reason it feels like home has to do with all of the people. I think it has to do with Sim and Will and Minette, to a small part Denna, even though she represents this mercurial force in his life. Ari, the steadiness of everyone at the university. The university does not represent change. In fact, we get another hit you over the head with the fact that the archives is a waystone. In many ways, yeah, the university is this institution that is turning because it always turns. Why does a wheel do what it does? It's because it's a wheel. But it also lags behind the rest of the world. I know the little bubble that I was in in college. We moved forward, but slowly. Institutions do not move fast. They do not 
accept changes rapidly, even as the outside world changes. Institutions have to be dragged along the wheel of change, the wheel of progress. And the more complex your institution is, the harder it is to move forward, just because there's more downstream changes that have to be made in order to catch up with those big macro level ones. They require changes, not just in process and technology, but also in terms of mindset and attitude for the people implementing those changes. They have to see the value in making those changes and want to do that. And that doesn't happen naturally. People get used to doing things a certain way and you have to sell them on <laughs> whatever change you're trying to implement. You have to get them to see the value in it. Otherwise, you'll get only a token effort at best. So with that, let's go ahead and talk for Nemos. So it's my turn this week and I picked Manette. I figured. So like I said, I really like that Manette looks at things from a system perspective. He sees how making one small change disrupts the rest of the systems. He sees where he fits within said systems, and he understands what he can do to make those systems work for him or against him. And he's pretty smart about knowing what he can do. He strikes me as someone who would be a very skilled pinball player. So pinball is naturally a game filled with a lot of uncertainty and a lot of very complex systems. And the player really has only two controls, the left flipper and the right flipper. And you don't have much that you can do, but if you use those flippers correctly, you can make those complex systems work for you. Or you can just completely botch the thing and you won't do anything. But through timing and clever manipulation, you can get what you want out of it. And you can rack up a massive high score just by knowing where and when to use your flipper. Like, we have examples of his understanding of these structures around patronage, the weird caste system of the Aeolian, music in general, understanding how the jokes that Kvothe is playing actually work. And then we also see that in the Graysdale Mead trick. And he understands also, hey, he knows when he's getting screwed. And he's not afraid to tell other people when they themselves are getting screwed. I think he has recognized that someone else benefiting does not mean that he's losing. He understands that it's not a zero-sum game. He understands that it's not pie. And he also understands that the systems that he's benefiting from are unjust. And the more people that can exploit them, the more readily people will come around to maybe changing them to be better. And he's not necessarily advocating for Kvothe to screw over someone else. He's not saying, look at the system and pick out the rich people and manipulate them and leave the rest of us alone. He's saying, no, here is the equitable way to handle this. Take it or leave it. We also get to see his interactions with Marie are all about knowing that both of them are people of worth. He doesn't demand Marie's time. He doesn't demand that she ditch her friends. In fact, he says, hey, I don't want to pull you away from your friends, but if you have any spare time, should I come find you? You know? 
gives her all the agency in this. He will only pursue her as much as she wants to be pursued. She can say yes or no. That is up for her to say. He recognizes that she is someone who values her independence, so he respects that and admires that about her and encourages it as opposed to try and control it. He gives her the option to walk away at any time, which that's important. That's something that we see the converse with Will and Sim, who are, hi, do you want to spend time with me? No. Okay. He says, hey, I think you're pretty cool. I think we could have a really fun conversation. I'd like to have more time to get to know you. When would work for you? And if the answer's never, then he's not going to make her feel terrible for that. Yeah, he doesn't play guilt or anything like that. He just simply says, this is what I have to offer. If it's worth it to you, great. If it's not, well, you're the best judge of that. I think that that was a really good choice. It's, again, the difference between confidence and arrogance. Recognizing that you have value, but that no one is obligated to treat you with any more than just basic decency. And as a result, he seems to have a chance to spend some time with her. We don't know what actually comes of that. We don't know if anything romantic happened or if they just had a good time. But either way, Manette won. <laughs> yeah. So with that, let's take a page out of Master Elodin's book and uh, let's learn an interesting fact. It's your turn this week. What'd you pick? All right. So like I told you earlier before we started recording... I'm in a little bit of a cheeky mood. Not you. Not me. So I have two because the first one is mostly a fact that is interesting to me because I want to know your reaction. Okay. Fun fact. Ben and Jerry's has a dairy-free version of Cherry Garcia, which I found out because of one of our Instagram people suggesting that your next punishment be Cherry Garcia ice cream. And fun fact for our audience, there is some of that in our freezer right now, just waiting for us to record your punishment for last time. Okay. Is that not an interesting fact? I find that interesting. I don't know that this is a terribly interesting fact. You're no fun. Anyway, for something that's a little less cheeky, the Canary Islands off the coast of Northwest Africa were actually not named after the birds. Now you have my attention. They're a part of Spain, and their name is actually Islas Canarias, which when translated from Latin to English means Island of Dogs, which I find to be just as enchanting as Island of Canaries. It reminds me of the film Isle of Dogs, which if you say it too fast, translates to I love dogs. Somehow I think it's the other way around. I love dogs. You are very cute. Well, that makes two of us. Speaking of dogs, saw a picture of our little fur nephew. He was a tiny, tiny little puppy when we got to see him for the first time ever. He was super fluffy. Little white lab, I think. Super little adorable thing. And then I saw a picture of him. And I'm like, oh my goodness. He got a snout and his body still hasn't quite caught up to his paws. But he looks so different. Dogs grow so fast. I know. Cats do too. I mean, think about like how much Sokka grew between when we adopted him and then when we moved. That's true. He grew into his ears, although it took a while for his head to grow into his body. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
There are photos that we have where his head looks really tiny and his body looks like really big. There was a period of about four or five months there where he was like Zippy the Pinhead. <laughs> and now he's a 20 pound cat that likes to sleep on our chests. It's not always comfortable, but I always feel loved when he does it. He's also one of the least graceful cats I've ever met in my entire life. Like, he has been known to walk onto my pillow and then just flump onto my face. So if one of these days I am not on the pod, it's probably because a 20-pound cat suffocated me. He really does lower the bar for cat-like grace. But I love him despite of that. And in fact, I think I kind of love him because of that. Yeah. <laughs> Sokka reminds me that it's okay to be bad at something and still enjoy it. Yes. Well, with that, I think it's time for you to recommend something to our audience. So this week, I'm going to recommend a book from 2007 called World War Z, An Oral History of the Zombie War by Max Brooks. You may have heard of it. It was turned into a movie a few years back. The movie's not very good, but that's not really what we're talking about. Yeah, also the movie has nothing to do with the book other than the name. I mean, the basic premise, yes, but nothing to do with the thing that makes the book work. Ah. The book was actually inspired by Max Brooks's time working as a UN observer during epidemics. So he writes about how ultimately it's hubris that is the root of humanity's defeat, and it's only by rejecting lone wolf narratives and embracing community that zombies are ultimately defeated. It feels rather prescient 14 years later here as we're looking at our own global pandemic and we're seeing that the nations that have been most successful in fighting COVID-19 have been the ones that have nurtured a sense of communal spirit and worked to ensure that there are no misaligned incentives to work against the common good. So if you consider places like Vietnam, or South Korea, Taiwan, all of these are places that have encouraged people to pull together. And you look at the way the institutions have responded, they have done so by providing safety nets to help people make the right decision for their communities. Whereas you look at nations that have struggled, it has been because people have been given guidance to do one thing for the greater good, while all of the other socioeconomic forces that work on them, such as income inequality, rental requirements, just basic subsistence, require them to put themselves and their communities at risk. Also, the engendered attitudes of rugged individualism. Correct. So I'll tell you what happened with masks. Two things. Save All the Masks for the Healthcare Workers was the first major amount of PR that masks got in the United States. You don't need one. The healthcare workers need them. We have a mask shortage. Don't bother. Not even saying, hey, make masks for other people. Cloth masks are good. Use them. Save the N95 masks for other people. And then the next thing that happened, masks save other people. You wearing a mask saves other people. In our stupid country, why should I care about other people? I care about me. It's not going to save me. No one cares. The other thing that I saw happen was in the countries where we have seen massive struggles, 
all of the effort in fighting the pandemic has been offloaded to individual virtue. And people are essentially told that it is your responsibility to do something about this. It's your job to put up with the burden of caring for your community. We're not going to help you as a society do this. And then if you fail, it is a failure of your personal virtue. So we're going to tell you that one, it's your job to figure out how to feed your family, but two, you shouldn't go to the grocery store. And it's your job to work from home, whether that's something that's feasible for you to do or not. And if it's something where you can't do that because you work in a job that requires in-person work, such as being a frontline retail worker in grocery especially, well, you just have to go to work or you work in a fulfillment center somewhere and it's your job to go to work. And it's your job to figure out how to stay safe while you do this risky thing. And if you get sick, it is your problem. And there's no safety net underneath the whole healthcare system in this country. I mean, other places do have universal healthcare. And so there is help for frontline workers that we just don't have. But like one of the things that I really value is watching science communicators on YouTube. And the same piece of data can be presented in multiple ways. So one of the first things that I saw science communicators talking about about masks in particular was that you wearing your own mask, things can still get in. And it didn't emphasize the conclusion that if you wear a mask, your germs will stay primarily in the mask and not get everywhere. Same pieces of data interpreted differently. One for the public good, one for the individual good. On top of that, we had masking presented as a personal choice at the federal level. Throughout everything, masking was treated as, this is something that you can do if you feel called to do so, but we're not going to recommend that everyone do it. We saw our executive branch explicitly making it a personal choice as opposed to something that was going to be both required and encouraged and assisted. Right. The assisted part. We had people who were saying in the post office, we got plans to distribute masks to everyone in the country. That would have been a huge step in the right direction. That would have said, one, this is important, important enough that we're going to give you the tools to succeed. Instead of saying, I will let you figure it out on your own. And then you have people stuck trying to figure out how best to move forward with this without good guidance, without good governance, and essentially left to fend for private virtue. And when a society relies solely on private virtue to do something, it will ultimately fall apart because of the tragedy of the commons, which is that even if 99% of the population does the right thing for the right reasons and does the best they can, just 1% of the population can screw it up, whether that is because of greed or because of their own sense of requirements. Because remember, a lot of the people who have flouted a lot of the restrictions aren't necessarily doing so just because they're selfish. They're doing so because they're desperate. If you look at why they're desperate, it is because they've been squeezed by a system that has told them to do one thing while punishing them for doing that exact thing. World War Z talks a lot about this. We see that 
things like income inequality punishes people for taking common sense precautions. It ends up creating a sense of invulnerability among those who have a lot and prevents them from doing things that could solve problems for everyone else, using their resources constructively. Instead, they bunker up and are ultimately destroyed by it. Like, you compare the Battle of Yonkers, which is the first real oh-shirt moment, where the U.S. military confronts a horde of zombies in Yonkers, New York, with high-tech weapons and smart bombs and, you know, full automatic guns, flamethrowers, you name it. And it's a disaster. Spoilers for World War Z, by the way. This all happens pretty quickly. I mean, this is a pretty short order thing. It's really the crushing emblematic defeat that shows exactly why the zombie threat is serious. And the US military at that point gets crushed under the undead hordes and scattered to the wind. Later in the book, when the military regroups, they make an effort to retake the country but instead of setting overarching goals, they set small goals. They start prizing unit cohesiveness over individual skill. They emphasize patience and practicality over just raw heroism. Hero narratives go out the window and people just start looking at how they can take small actions to save one another. Society gets re-architected away from being a pure knowledge economy everyone's a consultant into an economy where people look for practical ways to help the other people in need in their community. And it's enough to do something simple if it helps another person. It doesn't have to be this feat of technocracy. As I say, it was written 14 years ago, but it feels still very relevant today. I'm not saying that this is a massive revelation because this was a popular book when it came out, but I think it's worth a reread. I also recommend checking out the audiobook if you get the chance, because it's a full cast where each character in the book who is narrating their own story has a different actor portraying them. I love it when books do that. There have been a few that are like that, that just elevate the form of the audiobook. And it really feels to me as much like a companion piece as it is an adaptation. And really, when I look at the film, the biggest problem was it tried to present a traditional single-person narrative about one hero overcoming the zombie hordes, which is completely antithetical to the actual spirit of the book. I would much rather have seen them do sort of an HBO-style maxi-series where you have individual episodes focused around each narrator's story and what they did during this time, and then present it not as an adaptation, but again, a companion piece. I thought that would have been a more interesting way to handle it. But what do I know? I'm not a Hollywood studio executive. <laughs> yeah, but what do Hollywood studio executives know either? Yeah, that's kind of the point too. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to our seven words. You have seven words from the book, and as we have established, you get to go first on that. So I got a couple. So I have, that is rare and pure and perfect. It's a pretty good little turn of phrase there. I've also got a tune anyone with a bucket could carry. Again, kind of fun, but my favorite is he played the joke on the lute. Yeah, 
I thought about that. I noticed a lot of the phrases in this section of the book are not seven words. <laughs> because Sim says, technically, he played the joke on the lute. And I think I would have chosen your same seven words, but technically correct is the best kind of correct. Well, and, you know, as someone who is a fan of Weird Al, who has been playing jokes on the accordion for decades now, how could I say no? <laughs> so it's your turn for seven words from life. What do you have? Our online king killer community makes me smile. This is true. Especially Twitter. Thank goodness I have muted a whole ton of words that I don't want to see on Twitter. This has unfortunately led to me following some people that spout these words a lot and me not having any idea that that's happening because I have muted them. Sorry if there's anyone like that that I need to get rid of. Just, you know, kindly DM us and let us know. But there is a great fantasy novel loving community on Twitter. Some of us are specifically focused on the Kingkiller Chronicle, and some of us are more broad. There's a lot of Twitter of time. There is a lot of D&D. There is a lot of just loving all things Dresden Files and Brandon Sanderson and what have you. And it's much like the way that Quoth says, the musicians are my people. The book lovers are our people. You know, the Friends Talking Fantasy podcast recently just went through a whole bunch of their favorite quotes from the Kingkiller Chronicle. And entirely the right sort of podcast has done deep dives on all of these wonderful characters from the Kingkiller Chronicle. The people that pipe up whenever we talk about our favorite bits from the books or whenever we talk about, you know, just random fantasy stuff. Oh, oh my goodness. I absolutely adore having all of these lovely conversations. I've had conversations with people about some of my favorite games and it's a yes and and a yes and and a yes and. If you like this one, you'll like this one. And if you like this one, you'll like this one. Oh, I've played that one. I love that one. And those are some of my favorite interactions that I've gotten to have lately. And then not to toot my horn, but more that this made me incredibly happy. Some of our favorite theorists for like the Pixar films and, you know, pretty much anything Disney at this point, Super Carlin Brothers, started talking about the Kingkiller Chronicle. And Will and I both kind of looked up at the TV and were like, huh, let's watch that. And then I reached out and was like, hey, if you need any more people to follow, I know a whole lot. And we got a follow back from them. And it made me very happy. It's like this little tiny touch of another huge geeky audience. It's not necessarily fame. That's not what this is for. This is for fun. But it gave me a little bit of a thrill. It's a bit of validation. Yeah. It's saying, yep. We're not the only ones who love this crazy set of books that is maddeningly incomplete so far. Right. We're not the only ones waiting with eager bated breath. We're not the only ones enjoying doing a reread or a deep dive. Exactly. And again, with that whole, it's not pie. There are a lot of people who do similar things to what we do. 
Some people like listening to us. Some people like listening to them. Some people like listening to all of us. And I love it. At the end of the day, I think our creative lives are enriched by having more people talking about this rather than less. Exactly. I don't think that we have to worry about our audience being poached or something because it's not like we have, you know, the hugest amount of people. I think that there are like 80 of you that normally listen to us. And that's great. And I love it. And I'm also going to say we're not hipsters about this. It's not like we're the first people to think about these books. They've been around for 14 years. <laughs> exactly. We just love talking about them and thinking about them and sharing them. I think that's the biggest thing is loving the community, sharing with the community. We're a little fish. I don't know how big the pond is, but I want to make friends with all of the people in it. It's big enough for everyone. Come on in. The water's fine. <laughs> with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 7 and 8 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of diminished agency. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get early access to our episodes. Patreon-exclusive bonus pods, including our two-part deep dive into the book On a Sunbeam, and other exciting items, including a way to force me to do more art. Force. Force. <laughs> and with that, here's to one more day above the roses to one more day above the roses. Ding! Hit the record button. Hello, are you able to hear me? I mean, you are about a foot away from me, so... Yeah, I know that, but does this feel good? Feel good? Yeah, like in your ears, like uh, through the headphones. Is it coming through good? Are you talking like ASMR? Yeah. Like this. Are you able to hear this? Is this nice? I hate that noise. A bunch of little clicking noise that happens with this bit in the tongue and then whatever. You don't like ASMR? Apparently. <laughs>